Uh, I'm looking forward to spending the next uh, eight weeks in this amazing book called the book of Job. And I want to start tonight by asking you a question. The question is this. Have you ever had a, a bad day? Yes, you say. You know, that, that, that bad day when you wake up and you're feeling lousy and you go to work and the car won't start and then you drop your iPhone and a photocopy of jams and then you lose your keys and then you burn your dinner and you go to bed and think, that was a terrible day. We all have bad days, don't we? Everybody in this room has had a bad day. Here's my next question. Have you ever had a terrible day? You ever had those days when calamity strikes, when tragedy hits? Uh, up on the screen, there's a couple of pictures. Uh, Leslie Oakes had a terrible day. She was married to Stephen. They had three teenagers. Her husband was a policeman. Devout Christian family, active in their church. Godly, generous, kind. Her terrible day happened when there was a knock on the door from the police to say that Stephen and her husband had been killed in the line of duty. Why does that happen? Why does God permit that to happen? This beautiful couple, good friends of mine, Robert and Rosie Taylor, their, their terrible day happened when they were walking in Glebe one night with their son Simon, who was a good friend of mine, an active Christian, godly man, and Simon was murdered that night. Why does that happen? I can't show the picture because she doesn't want to be identified. Her name is Sarah. She and her husband went to Thailand with OMF as missionaries, and they set up an orphanage to care for underprivileged kids. Godly couple. And their terrible day happened when locals in the village set light to the orphanage with her husband inside. Why? Why does God permit these terrible things to happen? I could go on. We heard last week about Bruce Chapman, a godly man, a mission partner who's serving the Lord, diagnosed with, with brain tumors. A Christian surfer friend of mine who lost both his legs in a road traffic accident. Why does that happen? As I look out to you, I know that some of you in this room tonight have suffered tragedies. You've experienced deep pain that is raw and it's real. And can I just say, if you're here tonight and you haven't suffered deep pain that is raw and real, one day you will. I hate to say that, but one day you really will. So how are you going to respond in the midst of pain? How are you going to respond on those terrible days when you want to say, why God, why, what are you doing God? And that's why this book of Job is written. Job is a man who lost his property, his possessions, his family, his health. And Job's a man who kept on worshipping God and trusting God in the midst of the darkest despair and pain. In this book, Out of the Storm, Christopher Ashe, it's a great book, Christopher Ashe says, this is a man who is not asking the armchair questions of suffering. He's not sitting in his house, sipping a beer in his armchair, thinking, oh, I wonder what God thinks about suffering. 
He's answering the, the wheelchair questions. He's in the midst of the pain. He is in agony and he's asking, why God, why God, why? And I love this book because it's so real and it's so raw. It's a long book. It's 42 chapters long. And most Christians, please don't do this, most Christians read chapters 1 and 2 and chapter 42. A happy ending, then a tragedy, and a happy finish. There's a reason why God left 39 chapters there, because Job grapples and he questions and he screams and he asks. And you've got to go on that journey with us. If you're here tonight wanting simple answers to the question of suffering, you're going to be disappointed. There is no simple answer. It's complex. It is emotional. It's a long book. It is a, it's a book mainly of poetry. 95% of the book is poetic, and I love that because poetry is able to express emotion in a way that prose cannot. And we're supposed to live in the emotion. We're supposed to feel the pain. It's also a, a book which is really all about Jesus. It's a book about Job is, is an innocent man who suffered. And rather than just equating yourself with Job, we're also supposed to look to Jesus, who is the perfect innocent man who also suffered. And whereas Job longed for a mediator, Jesus was the mediator. And whereas Job prayed for a redeemer, Jesus was the redeemer. So you've got to read this book through the lens of Jesus Christ and see your suffering the other side of the cross through the lens of Jesus. And the reason I'm preaching this book of Job is to prepare every single one of us, every single one of us, as a pastor, to prepare you for suffering, to equip you for pain. That might sound odd. It's a bit like, you know, when you're about to jump into an icy cold water and you stand at the edge and your head is telling you, this is going to hurt, this is going to hurt. I'm not going to scream, I'm not going to scream. And you jump into the water and the first thing you do is, Scream. Because head and heart need to work together. You're going to feel the pain and suffering. You should scream in suffering. But your head is going to equip you and tell you how to cope in the midst of suffering. So shall I pray? And then we'll listen to Job chapter 1. Father, we, we do thank you for this little letter. We thank you, Lord, that you've preserved it for us so that we can learn about you about your goodness and your sovereignty, even in the midst of pain. Please feed us and nourish us tonight, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I invite Queenie up. So this lectern is going to be earth, and this lectern is going to be heaven, and we're going to have a kind of narrated reading tonight between earth and heaven, earth and heaven. Let's listen to chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. In the land of Oz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their home on their birthdays 
and they would invite the three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangement for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. I've called to see one, Job, blessed and blameless. It's such a happy start to the book, isn't it? Uh, there's lots we don't know about Job. We don't know where he lived, so no one really knows where the land of Uz is. It's not Israel, it's just somewhere in the east. We, we don't really know when Job lived. There's no dating for this book. He just lived a long, long time ago. I, I think he's somewhere between Noah and Moses, and I think that because Job himself is offering sacrifices on behalf of himself and his kids before the priesthood. But we don't know much about his background. There's no genealogy. We know nothing about his parents, his spiritual journey, his childhood. See, Job could have been anybody. And that's the point of this book. This is just a, a godly man worshipping God in a fallen world who's experiencing pain and suffering. And that's many of us. Godly people seeking to worship God in a fallen world in the midst of pain and suffering. But look what we do now, verse 1, he was blameless. See that word in verse 1? It means he was beyond accusation. He had personal integrity. He, he's not perfect. He, he's not sinless, but his lips, his life, he's pure, he's sincere, he is genuine. Verse 1, he is upright. He pursues what is right. He is open and honest and kind and generous. He's a good man and he feared God. He revered God. He honored the living, true God. He bowed down to his creator. And he shunned evil. He avoided doing the wrong thing. And so straight away, verse 1 is a vital verse for this book because you know straight away that Job is not suffering because he sinned. Do you get that? Straight away, that, that nonsense that you suffer because you're a sinner is thrown out of the window. Oh, he is a sinner. He's not perfect. But he's not being punished for any particular sin. You've got to keep reminding yourself of that as you go through the book because the more you read Job, the more you begin to question, is there some hidden sin in his life that he's suffering for? And the answer is no. He's blameless. And he's blessed, mightily blessed, verse 2, seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants, the greatest man among the east. He is wealthy beyond our imagination. Do you know when a, a Christian man or woman suddenly become wealthy? It goes through my mind. Oh no. If they get more and more wealthy, they're going to forget God and think they don't need God. That often happens. But not with Job. He's the opposite. Almost in spite of his wealth, he, he still loves God. He's jealous for the name of the Lord. He fears God. He reveres God. He somehow knows that God requires sacrifices. He offers sacrifices on behalf of his kids in case they've sinned. He's a good man. 
down in verse 8. See that, have you considered my servant Job? That phrase, my servant. It's the name used for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, the Lord Jesus Christ, and Job, my servant Job. See, if suffering was a result of wrongdoing, Job is not a good candidate. So you have this amazing start on earth. Job is a good, godly man who's been richly blessed. But one day, tragedy strikes. In scene two, we pull back the curtain of heaven and we get a glimpse into this heavenly chamber. There's a heavenly cabinet meeting and God's in the chair and all the other spiritual beings, including Satan, bring their report to God. Let's listen to that. Chapter one, verses six to 12. This is in heaven. Red mic, John. Go again. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God, and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well, then, Everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So we kind of eavesdrop on this, on this conversation between God and Satan, or the Satan as he's called. That's his title. He's the accuser. He's the prosecutor. There's two shocks here. The first one is that God seems to dangle Joe before Satan. Do you spot that in verse 8? It's God who says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That's, that's shocking, isn't it? It's like a, a, a thief who's in a jeweler's shop and he's done all his thieving and he's about to walk out of the shop and the shop owner says, hang on a sec, have you considered the best jewel? Here it is, take this one. That's what God seems to be doing here. And I know that God is not stupid, so the only conclusion is that God is confident of Job. He is so confident that Job's faith is real. Satan doesn't think so. Satan questions Job's faith. Do you see that down in verse 9, 10, and 11? He says, you've blessed the work of Job's hands. He has all this stuff. But stretch out your hand and strike everything and he will surely curse you. What he's saying there is that, is that Job is a bit like a, a pokey believer. He keeps on hitting the jackpot, so of course he keeps going back for more. But if you take the stuff away from him, God, then he'll curse you. He says, he just believes you because you give him good stuff. 
So he really questions God's integrity in verse 10. Have you not put a hedge around him? Aren't you protecting him? God, you don't have real followers. You're just manipulating people by giving them good things. That's the first shock that, that God dangles Job. The second shock is that God gives this terrible permission. God hands Job over to Satan. So we expect God to say, I don't need to prove anything to you, Satan. No, stop it, no. And I think God says no to Satan every day. You know, Satan is roaming around like a roaring lion waiting to devour us. And every day God is saying, no, no, no. But on this occasion he says, go on then. Verse 12. Very well then. Everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself don't lay a finger. Again, you've got to ask, why? Why does God do that? Is God some sort of cosmic sadist like C.S. Lewis describes him? Or does God want to show the depth of Job's faith? It's an extraordinary scene. We'll talk about this more in a minute, but your theology of the spiritual realm, your theology of Satan, your theology of God's sovereignty, you've got to get that right. So let's switch back to earth. And Queen will read the next uh, few verses. And remember that Job has not heard this heavenly conversation. Let's listen to the next few verses. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing, the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Cadians formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine in a single day losing your property, your possessions, your children. It is just beyond imagination, isn't it? How would you respond? 
It's like 9-11 and the day begins normally. But then tragedy strikes. The feast day, the family are all together. And then calamity strikes with these four massive blows. Verse 14, blow number one. Uh, the Sabaeans come. They are the terrorists and they attack and they steal the oxen and they kill the servants. Blow number two, bang, the bushfire comes. The fire of God from the hand of God and it burns up the sheep and the servants. And just when you think it can't get any worse, the Chaldeans come and they take your camels and they kill your servants. The worst blow of all comes in verse 18. All your kids are together in the house and they're feasting and they're drinking. And this is real. The earthquake, the hurricane comes. The mighty wind comes from the hand of God and it ravages the city and the house is taken and all ten children are killed instantly. Can you imagine that? This is not made up. What is the response of Job? Job responds as we should all respond. The first thing he does is he, he weeps and he sobs and he mourns and he's filled with sadness. You've got to do verse 20 before you do verse 21. Job tore his robes. The pain is tearing at his heart. He shaves his head because he's in mourning. He is grieving. He fell to the ground. He's crushed by his sadness. That grief is so overwhelming. It's a right response. He does not pretend this is okay. You've got to weep in your traumas. But look at those last two words of verse 20. He fell to the ground in worship. In worship to his God, and he says these extraordinary words, the, the words that are read at her funerals, naked I came from my mother's womb, I brought nothing with me, he says, and naked I will depart, I will take nothing with me. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. This is the extraordinary bit. May the name of the Lord be praised. He says, God's taken and God has given. And whether he gives or whether he takes, we've got to make sure that whatever happens, we, we adore God and we praise God and we trust God and we keep walking with God. I don't know about you, but that shocks me more than, more than any verse we've read so far. That challenges me. I'm not sure that I would say those words. I want to. And I'm sure it shocked Satan. I'm sure Satan was thinking, wow, this man really does worship God. We're told in verse 22 that Job did not sin. He certainly didn't sin. He's praising his God in the midst of the pain. Let's shift briefly back to heaven. And Andrew will read verses 1 to 7 of chapter 2. On, an, on another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity. Though you incited me against him, 
to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But now, stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. It's the same kind of scene, isn't it? Except in verse 3, he adds the bit, he maintains his integrity. He's done that, hasn't he? Job has lost his possessions, his property, his kids, but he's maintained his integrity. He's still worshipping God. And what Satan says here is, okay, you've taken stuff away from him, and you've taken loved ones away from him, but you haven't actually afflicted him personally. I think it's the philosopher Hazlitt who says that the smallest pain in our little finger generates more mental concern in us than the, the death of thousands of people. And he's right, you know, when you get toothache and it's sort of all-consuming because you are personally in pain. It's the way that we're wired. And so Job, sorry, God says to Satan again, okay, verse 6, he's in your hands. Look at the parameters, look at the boundary but you must spare his life. The, the one condition is that you can't kill Job, which if you think about it, is probably the one thing that Job really wanted to happen. Just to be dead, to be relieved of his suffering. So let's hear about his suffering one last time, chapter 2, verses 7 to 10. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with this as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Again, it's extraordinary, trusting God in terrible, terrible suffering. There's no agent this time, there's no Sabeans, no fire, no Chaldeans. This is just Satan's work. And let's be clear, this, this sores on his soles of his feet to the crown of his head, this is not just a skin rash. This is not a bad case of acne. He, he's got pus-filled sores. In chapter 7, verse 5, it's described as, my body is clothed with worms and scabs, and my skin is broken and festering. And you're supposed to imagine this man who is in agony. Every step is painful. He can't sit. He can't stand. He can't talk. He can't walk. And so he sits all alone. Verse 8. Among the ashes, on the rubbish dump, but like Gehenna, and everything is broken. Everything is broken, including this piece of pottery that he uses to, to scrape himself. Just a bit of relief. And you're thinking, there's nothing else bad that can happen to him, is there? And the answer is, yeah, there is. There's one more thing. Mrs. Job. But we shouldn't laugh at her because actually... She's grieving. She's lost her kids. She's lost her home. She's lost her possessions. And she's watched her husband suffering. And let's be honest. Verse 9 is more natural to us. 
Are you still maintaining your integrity when you've suffered so much, he says? Just curse God and die. Let's be done with it. That's the sense of that. Calvin calls her Satan's tool. Because you can imagine Satan smiling. He's almost won. We never hear a word from Joe's wife again. But Joe's response is extraordinary again. That's not the way to talk, he says. No, it's not. This is the hard bit. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble, says Job. Job is saying, you can't just live life taking the good things, but when the bad things come, you ignore God. You can't just take all the comforts of God, but when the calamities come, you, you rail against him. He gives good things and he gives bad things. He brings trouble and he brings treasures. It's extraordinary. I imagine at this point heaven is applauding as God is honoured. Let me be clear, this is not the end of Job. You've got 39 chapters of agony. Next week we're going to see Job in despair and in depression. But he's a righteous man. I want to give you four really quick points. Here's the first one. A word of warning, Satan is real. The spiritual realm is real and Satan's aim in life is to destroy our faith. You've got to believe that. Satan is real. Call him what you want. The devil, you call him the accuser, the tempter. Satan, he does exist. Yet God is in control. Satan is subject to God. But, but God is not the only spiritual power at work in this world. Do you believe that? There is a heavenly realm. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 describes Satan as like a, a prowling around, like a roaring lion waiting to devour us. And I know that some churches overemphasize Satan. You know, in some churches, every week we're praying for deliverance and we're binding at Satan in all these different areas. But I do wonder whether we underemphasize Satan, whether we kind of view our lives as though we are, everything we can see and touch and feel is all that matters. And we forget that the Bible talks about a heavenly realm with spiritual beings. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. So put your armor on. Now Job 1 and 2 makes it very clear that Satan is at work in this world. And his aim is to destroy the faith of the believer. So as John Piper says, Satan has two weapons. One weapon is called pleasure. Let's give God's people pleasure. Let's give them stuff. Let's give them wealth. And let's say they don't need God anymore. One weapon is pleasure. The second weapon is pain. I have watched many, many believers struggle and question and doubt because of pain. I want to ask you, do you believe in the spiritual realm? Do you believe a spiritual battle is going on right now? Because God, uh, when God's gospel goes out, Satan hates that. I reckon I've experienced that real spiritual battle lots in the last six months. As we've tried to expand the gospel and preach Christ more and more and more. So much spiritual opposition. Word of warning, Satan is real. Word of comfort. You've got to believe this. God is absolutely sovereign. 
Yes, Satan exists. Yes, Satan has power. But he has no power that God does not have control over. We sing about it. No power can stand against you. No curse assault your throne. No one can steal your glory. It's yours alone. You have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forever our God reigns. Do you believe that? That God is on his throne every second, every millisecond of the entirety of history. God never leaves his throne. Do you believe that? See, some people, some Christians have this weird theology. They think there's two thrones in heaven. And God's on one throne giving you good things and Satan's on the other throne giving you bad things. That is rubbish. One throne. And other Christians have this weird idea that there's one throne in heaven and, and sometimes God's on the throne and you're getting good stuff in life and then Satan comes and pushes God off the throne and then you get the bad things in life and then God pushes Satan off the throne again you get the good things in life. And that is heresy. One throne with God ruling for all eternity. Whatever power Satan has been granted by God himself. Luther calls him God Satan. Do you notice how God puts limitation on Satan's power? Chapter 1 verse 12, very well, everything he has is in your power except here's the hedge, here's the boundary on the man himself, don't lay a finger. Chapter 2 verse 6, very well then, he's in your hands except here's the boundary, you must spare his life. See, Satan can do this much but no more. It's almost like God has put Satan on a leash. And sometimes he reins him in and sometimes he lets him go. Sometimes God gives terrible permission. We don't know why. There's no simple answer to that. But you've got to believe that there is no power that Satan has that is not under God's control. God never for a second abdicates his power. I remember talking to a, a, a woman in my office next door who, whose husband of 30 years had just walked out on her. And she was sobbing, literally sobbing in my office. And then she said these extraordinary words. She said, but I know God's in control even of this. That was powerful. <laughs> I know God's in control even of this. And she's right. It didn't minimize the pain or the hurt or the heartache, but to be able to say God's in control, what's the opposite? God didn't mean for this to happen. God didn't mean for you to lose your job. God didn't mean for you to get cancer. God didn't mean for you to lose your property. God didn't mean for the accident to happen. As though, poor God... Oh, poor God, he's not powerful enough to, to change that. There is no comfort in that, is there? There's no comfort in, in a weak, impotent God, is there? It doesn't take away the hurt and the pain. But we've got to learn to say, God, you are sovereign. That's what Job almost says, like the Lord brought the Sabaeans and the Lord brought the fire and the Lord brought the Chaldeans and yes, the Lord brought the, the hurricane that caused the death of his kids. Number three, there is innocent suffering. Not all suffering is directly related to a sin. It might be, 
If you're suffering right now, it might be because of some stupid decision that you have made and you're bearing the consequences, but not always. In fact, in many ways, Job's innocence exposes him to suffering, doesn't it? It's because he's blameless that that God says, have you considered my servant Job? And that is true for many a mature Christian I know. Some of the most upright, godly, mature believers have suffered the most. So please get rid of any trite, neat, simple solutions for suffering. Remember when those people asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? He was born blind and Jesus said, neither. If you ever want proof there is such a thing as innocent suffering, where do you look? The cross of Christ? Did Jesus deserve to suffer? No. Was he innocent? Yes. Did he suffer? Yes. Why did he suffer? So that you and I could experience real forgiveness and redemption. But this is the big one this week. Trust God as you weep. Trust God as you weep. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you have been through. I don't know what calamities you will face. But I do know that someday you will weep. And can I say, church, weep you must. Weep you must. God has given us tears. God has given us emotions. We are called to weep. And I say that because a lot of Sydney evangelical Christians have got this, their right theology but it almost switches off the emotions. And what I mean by that is, you know, when someone that we know and love dies, of course we grieve with hope. Of course we grieve differently. Of course you talk about the resurrection. That is right. But it doesn't stop us from crying, does it? It doesn't stop us from being sad. And can I say that when you go through your trials or tragedy, you better be weeping. That is the right response. And I I long for this church to be a church where it's not just safe to weep, but it's right to weep, and we weep with each other. But in the midst of that, yes, as we're sobbing like a baby, we're still saying, I trust God. I trust God. I may never understand why. I may never get the answers I want but I'm holding on to my God and he is still my rock and he's still my refuge and I'm hurting God and it feels so bad and my guts are being wrenched at God and I'm so sad and I'm lonely and I'm grief-stricken but the one thing I know is this. God, you are God. God, you are God. The Lord gave, says Job, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. It's part of the joys of preaching, Job, because there'll be times when you are tearful, but you'll be trusting. And there's times you will be howling, but you'll be holding on to God. So please, 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 with the faintest of cries, could you whisper through the tears, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. I want to make sure I'm praising his name. I'm conscious that tonight's sermon might have caused questions, so I'm here, Dan, in the prayer corner at the end, but let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful that even in the darkest of days that you are still God. We're thankful, Lord, that you are always on your throne, that there is no power that can stand against you. Nothing can assault your throne, Lord. 
But Lord, we are perplexed and we are confused as to, as to why you allow things to happen. Help us to turn our questions to you, to pour out our heart to you, but to keep trusting you as we weep. In Jesus' name.